Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for coming out today. So this is a difficult subject. Um, it's one of the most difficult subjects there is, isn't it? Um, why is it that we suffer? Can we find any meaning uh, in suffering? And it's a subject to which I don't think there is one answer, um, and to which probably in this life we can't find a complete answer. There will be, you know, there are limits, I think, to, to, to you know, where we can sort of understand so far, and then, and then at a certain point we have to hand it over to God, and it becomes a matter of faith of can we trust God to do the right thing. Um, but, uh, but I think we can, I think we can, uh, you know, there's a number of points or a number of aspects of the subject that we can look at, which can at least help us start to understand, I think, from uh, the perspective, and really what we, what we want to try and do this afternoon is think, um, you know, if uh, the, 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 the Bible is true, if, um, if we believe in the kind of God the Bible describes, uh, who has the purpose with the world that the Bible says that he has, uh, then does it make sense for us to be living in a world with suffering? And I think the answer to that is yes, it does make sense that given the Bible's portrayal of God and ourselves and where, where we're going, um, it does make sense that we would find that, that suffering in the world as indeed we find it. So we, we're going to be exploring that. In what way does that, does that make sense? So it can't be comprehensive treatment of the subject. We're going to make a few points that hopefully will be useful as, as a way of thinking about it. But before we start into... Um, how does suffering look like from the perspective of a believer? I'd just like us to spend a moment saying, well, um, how does suffering look like from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe in God? If there is no God, what of suffering then? And the answer is that um, suffering has no meaning, does it? Um, there is no bigger picture. There is no bigger meaning in suffering it is a meaningless thing as indeed if all we are is a random accident uh, th th then there is no higher purpose at all and nothing has any meaning and whether I have a life without suffering Dan has one with suffering it doesn't make any difference does it none of it matters none of it has a meaning and um, C.S. Lewis, you know, the author of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the other Narnia books, we're going to be quoting him. He, he wrote quite a lot on suffering, actually. And I think some of the best expressed words on the subject that at least that I've found. And, um, and he describes what the world looks like if you take God out of it. If you imagine that God doesn't exist, what do you have? All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter, says Lewis. So there's no meaning in anything if you take God out of it. And yet that just doesn't feel right to any of us, does it? Whether or not we believe in God, um, we are outraged by suffering. It feels wrong to us. It feels terrible when, for example, a young person um, dies of you know, of cancer or, or, or something, that, that it, it feels that something has happened that shouldn't have happened. And yet, without God, if random chance is all that there is, 
what have we got to be outraged about? There isn't any meaning to any of it anyway, is there? So it's like you just shrug your shoulders and carry on. And yet we don't do that as human beings. What we ought to do is say, well, you know, that was, a, that was obviously a weaker member of the species anyway, and so it's a good thing, you know, according to evolutionary processes, it's a good thing that they've, that they've passed away so that the stronger ones of us can, can get on with, um, you know, moving to the top of the, the chain. But, but we don't do that. I mean, it's, it's crass to even suggest that. None of us does that because we actually intuitively don't accept the propositions that a life without God or the logical consequences that a life without God would lead us to. So we are outraged by suffering and that, in order to be outraged by it, there needs to be a reason. And the reason has to be that we expected and we hoped for something better for ourselves. And the Bible tells us that, yes, there is something better for us. God wants to give us something which is better for us. But what's happened? Well, then we, of course, we get into the subject of sin and say that, well, to a greater or larger degree, we've said, no thanks, God, I'd rather do my own thing. And that then has its consequences, doesn't it, when we get into what the consequences of, uh, of sin are. But do, 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 do you see the point there? Um, so probably um, to understand suffering is one of the hardest things that as believers that we have to do. But it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's almost a meaningless thing if we're, if we're unbelievers. And often, unbelievers, it's the, it's the first pushback, isn't it? You believe in God. How can you believe in God when, um, you know, however many people just died in that earthquake or when, you know, such and such a thing, you know, when um, someone I know died from cancer or, what, or whatever it is. That, that's how the argument is often put. Sometimes I think it's used as an excuse, just as a way of saying, of, of, of pushing you away and saying, well, you know, I don't want to deal with the question of God and therefore here's my pat answer to that. But, um, but for many people it is also a genuine obstacle, isn't it? But, but often if we look at the assumptions that are made when that argument is made, there's a problem with the assumptions. Um, for example, there's a common argument which goes, if God is all-powerful and a God of love, um, then uh, it doesn't make sense for there to be suffering. There is suffering, and therefore God either can't be all-powerful, or he would stop it, or he can't be loving, or he wouldn't do it to us, and therefore there can't be a God. That's how, that's how the argument goes. But um, all the assumptions of the argument are flawed, because... It assumes, if God is a God of love, what that says is, so all there is to be said about God is that he's loving. Uh, and it's the sort of God who, whatever I want, he should give it to me because he's loving, isn't it? And that was never the sort of God that the Bible said existed in the first place. Uh, and, and, and similarly, um, if God were all-powerful, well, God is all-powerful, but God has set constraints for himself. Um, God is all-powerful, but um, there, there are things that he can't do. And, uh, you know, at the trivial level, like, you know, so, so God is all-powerful. Can he make a square circle? Um, well, no, he can't. You know, that's just, that's just a silly playing with words, really, isn't it? But, again, 
Um, God, has cho- God has chosen to place limits upon what he will do because he has a certain purpose. And let's just think about the way in which that makes sense. Suppose again, well, suppose we have the purpose of playing chess together. So we sit down and have our game of chess. So the object is, you know, to have an entertaining time, to tax our brains and, you know, to see who's the best at chess. So that's our purpose. That's what we want to do. And so we sit down and what we do is we then constrain ourselves to the rules of chess, don't we? And if I suddenly started to say, well, my bishop is going to move in straight lines rather than diagonals. See what, you know, what you're going to do about that then, eh? Um, well, it's no longer a game of chess, is it? And, you know, maybe it becomes a fist fight instead at some point. Or it's, you know, it's, the game isn't going to work. And similarly, God has, God has imposed constraints upon himself in terms of the way he will interact with the world in order to accomplish his purpose. What is that purpose? His purpose is a future world with... <coughs> human beings and other creatures, but with human beings who have chosen of their own free will, will to, 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 to have a relationship with him. Um, and this is a very important point then. So this brings us to, to, the, to the point about free will. And perhaps this is the most, you know, the single most important point, really. Um, we want to be free don't we? We want to be able to choose whether we will eat a Mars bar or a Snickers at the very, you know, at the very trivial level or, uh, you know, whether we will be a, a postman or a fireman, whatever. We want to, we want, we want to be, a, we appreciate having that choice. Um, and we don't want our choices to be restricted, do we? And if someone, you know, <coughs> from above says, well, actually, you can't have the Snickers, you've got to have the Mars bar, then we start to be annoyed about that, and we say, but I want to choose. It's my right to choose. So, so, so we want free will. We like free will. But what are the implications of free will? Well, the implications are that we can make bad choices, and then I can choose to spoil that game of chess if I want. I can choose to argue and fight. I can choose to exploit. I can choose to go to war. I can choose to be jealous. I can choose to commit a crime. And um, what I do for my day job is I I invest in companies in emerging markets. And, you know, there's about 30-odd markets that that I invest in. And I think every single one of those, you know, the the amount of corruption that you see in every single government uh, that that you deal with, it's just just systemic. It's everywhere you look. Why, Why is it like that? Well, it's because people have chosen to do those things, isn't it? People have chosen to take bribes. So if you take the example of Nigeria, it should be a very rich country because it's got all that oil and other resources. What happens? The money comes in from the oil and then the, the, government, the government ministry takes that money and then it gives it out to all the, the, all the politicians who are, in its, who are in the prime minister's pocket. And the normal people don't, don't really get any benefit from it. And they're still, they're still in poverty. And, you know, everyone knows this is what happens. Um, it's, it's completely corrupt. That is because people have chosen to do that. That is a consequence of free will. So um, when you look at uh, where, you know, where does most suffering come from, the answer is most of it comes from choices uh, that 
people make and whether that's at the you know at the sort of grotesque level of um, you know that corruption that I just described in Nigeria or whether it's at the level of well I'm just I just had a bad day today so I'm just going to be unkind to you um, I'm just going to be snappy or, or whatever it is um, that's that's a choice I make isn't it and that is a consequence of free will. And that will impact, that will make other people, the choices I make have the potential to make me suffer and to make others suffer. But that is the price of free will. So why does God, um, why does God choose to um, take the consequences of that, pay the price of that? If the price of that is suffering, why does he do it? Well, I think he does it because... Um, that's the negative side, that we can make bad choices, but of course the positive choice is that we can make good choices. And we all know how wonderful it is when people make good choices and what joy that can bring into life. And how we can grow as people as a result of making good choices. And that's what God wants us to do. So he wants obedience and worship and service from people who choose to give it. But being able to choose to give it means that you can also choose not to give it. To be able to choose good genuinely means to be able to choose bad. So when we say God is all-powerful, that's true. But he's all-powerful within the constraints of giving us free will. So let's take that as an example. Suppose that, suppose that we had our dysfunctional game of chess and we become angry with one another. And I decide I'm going to punch and, and, and so I go to do that, but as soon as I do, I have a searing pain running through my arm, and so I don't do it, because it's just too painful. Um, well, is that free will, then? I'm going to do one of two things, aren't I? I'm either going to, well, I suppose three things. I could say, well, all right, I'm not going to punch him. And if I, if, if, if I do that, then really... You know, if God deals with us in that way, like the instant we're going to do something bad, God sends us an electric shock, then I'm nothing more than a lab rat at the end of the day, am I? Uh, you know, with being rewarded with treats and, 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 and shocks. Is that, what, is, is that what we really want to be? Do we really want God to deal with us in that way? I don't think we do. Um, you know, <coughs> what a human being can be is something more than an animal with a sort of Pavlovian response. Isn't it of you know salivating when food comes, when you know, or when a certain noise is, is, is you know, someone makes a click and I start salivating. You know, <laughs> no, no one wants to see that. Um, so, so, uh, so, but, but of course, then having that choice to be genuine has 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 the consequence that we can punch each other if we choose to do that. And of course, people make those choices. They do. So, 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 so I'm either going to not punch him because I got this pain, or I'm going to think, well, if I punch him, I'm going to get the pain, so I'll find some other way of getting at him. But maybe it doesn't involve punching, but I'm sure I can think of some other way of being nasty. Uh, yes, you know, um, that's one of the things human nature can do. Um, but, but, but then you say, well, suppose, suppose then as soon as I think the thought of being nasty, then I get the, I get the shock. Well, then I, the, the free, will's, free will's gone, hasn't it? So, but what that means then is that the price of having free choice is so much of the suffering um, that we see. <coughs> and again, so that's all crime, all war, all persecution all exploitation, 
all um, s selfishness and lack of consideration for others. Um, all those kinds of things, all the suffering that arises from them is a result of not something that God does, but something that we have chosen to do. And you say, well, what about natural disasters? That's not us choosing to do it. Well, that's true. And, and you know, that, that there is something to be said about natural disasters. Probably won't have time to do it today, maybe. Um, but we've got to keep things in proportion here. And here's just one statistic as an example of that. Um, we like to be able to drive, don't we? And we like to be able to have the choice of getting in our car and driving where we want to go. Um, in, in the US, and I only have data on the US, in the last 15 years, there's been 90 times more people that have died from car accidents than from all acts of nature put together. 90 times as many. So you say, well, you know, what are we really dealing with? Is this really about natural disasters? Yes, there are bad natural disasters that we do need to have an explanation for or try and understand from a biblical perspective, but that's not actually the bigger problem here. <coughs> the bigger problem is uh, things that we do ourselves. And even when you take natural disasters, there's an interesting thing there. So ju again, just take the US as an example. What do people do in the US? Well, they like to go and live in Florida because it's warm. But of course, by choosing to go and live in Florida, they're exposing, they're making it much more likely that they'll be, uh, they'll be a victim of hurricane activity because that's where, we know, we know that's where the hurricanes hit, don't we? But we choose to go and live there because we'd like to be warm and we'll take our chances on if a hurricane will come and knock our house down or not. But we expose ourselves to the risk. Or you take San Francisco. We know that the likelihood is of, a, of an earthquake there at some point. How do we know it? Well, if we had a house in San Francisco, the chances are we wouldn't be able to get house insurance for it. Right? That's how likely it is that it's going to happen at some point. We know it's going to happen. And yet, however many million people it is, choose to live there. They could make other choices, um, but you know, that's a human <coughs> choice, again, about something that we have understanding of. So it's interesting how often, really, it's human choices that are the most significant factor here. So, so what we've said is, well, it's humans who create suffering, and God allows us to experience the consequences of that, but he has to do that in order for us to be truly free. But you say, well, but isn't the price too high for that? Isn't it too much suffering? Um, and and that's, that's a difficult argument, isn't it? How much is too much? There's two ways of answering that. Um, so, so I think perhaps it's not so much the fact that there is suffering. I think we can understand why that would be uh, in terms of consequences for action, human actions. But the problem is more about, but there's too much suffering. Or, but people shouldn't suffer like that. But imagine if they didn't. Imagine, for example, that, that cancer were too bad. And so God's, God were to say, well, we won't have that type of suffering, but we'll have this. And I'm going to you know, make it frivolous just to make a point, really. But you know, imagine the worst thing that you could have were, were toenail fungus. Now, if that were the case, what would happen then is that what people would be outraged about would not be cancer, it would be toenail fungus, wouldn't it? It's like whatever the worst suffering there was in that world that God had allowed, 
that would be the thing that would seem the outrageous thing because suffering is very much a relative thing in that sense. And the, the, this matter of quantity is a bit like that. So, so is the price too high? Well, an interesting way of answering that is to think about ourselves as parents. We know the suffering that there can be in this world, just as we know the joy that can be in this world. And most parents have a choice of whether or not to bring children into a world that has that much suffering and that much joy in it. And what do we choose? Most people do not argue there's too much suffering in the world and therefore I'm not going to have children because, you know, I don't want my daughter to be upset the first time she, you know, I know how awful it is when your boyfriend dumps you and I don't want a child of mine, no child of mine should have to suffer that, therefore I'm not going to have any children. You can imagine some, you know, re reasoning like that. We don't do that, do we? We don't reason like that. We, we know that there is the possibility of suffering and pain and we know that there is all the rewards that there are in life and we choose in a way to make the choice that God has made, which is to bring people into a world that will be like this, with the positives and the negatives. Um, why did we do it? Because we think that life is worth living, actually, despite the problems that it has. Why did God do it? Because that's the way of achieving what he wants to achieve. What does he want to achieve? He wants to prepare people for his kingdom, people who would want and choose to be there. And this, what we're in now, is like the building site that gets us to that building that God is planning for the future. I think that building site analogy is a very helpful one. You know, if there were a building site there out, out there now, um, you know, architects don't design building sites, do they? They design buildings. And if you want to, and it would be completely unreasonable to look at the building site and say, that's ridiculous that anyone would have a building site there like that. Um, what we would say is, what is the building going to be like that is going to be there? And the fair thing to do would be to make a judgment about whether that's a good building or not. Is it going to be useful? Is it going to look good? Is it going to fit in with the environment? All those things would be sensible questions. And if the answer is, yes, that sounds to me like a good building, then we would accept the mess and the inconvenience of the building site in order to get that building. And it's just the same when we think about what is the world that God's planning? What is the building he's planning? It's not this world. It's the world to come when Jesus returns, the world of his kingdom. What do you need to do in order to create the, the possibility of that and the answer is you need to play according to these rules of chess you need to play according to these rules of free will where God as it were stands back and lets us do our thing and lets us make our choices and provides us with the tools we need in order to prepare ourselves for this future kingdom but lets us make the choices and suffer the consequences uh, but provides us with all the help that we're going to need in order to get there in the future and that's of course why he sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ to make that possible so so we shouldn't judge God's plan or God's existence by what the world looks like now because what the world looks like now is not the end product the finished product this is not what God is designing God is designing the world which is to come and this is the route this is the building site in order uh, to get us there one writer described um, um, describe the process of 
you know, develop it, or this, uh, this life as being the veil of soul making, meaning this is where we prepare for the life that is to come. This is where, um, you know, we suffer knocks and hardship and pain and suffering and also joy and, and, and delight and relationships and pleasure, all those wonderful things that life has. Um, and those ups and those downs are there to prepare us, if we approach them in a spiritual way, for the world which is to come. And that's the world uh, that really matters. So let's think a little bit about uh, uh, that. And I'd like to do so by uh, thinking about why we have pain. Why is there pain? And um, the answer is to protect us. To tell us that something is wrong or dangerous and that we need to make some changes. Um, you know, if you get a headache, you sit all day at your computer and you start to get a headache, that's actually telling you something, isn't it? Telling you that your body needs a break, that you need to get away from the computer screen, that you need to, you know, you start to get backache, that, you know, you need to go and do something else. You need to take a break, have a walk, whatever. Um, you know, there's a, there's a pan of boiling water on the stove and, um, you know, you go to grab it and it's going to hurt you, isn't it? But it's an awful, good, awfully good thing that it does hurt you, because if it doesn't hurt you, you would grab hold of the pan and merrily go on your way doing whatever it was, holding on to the metal pan, and by the time you took your hands away, you wouldn't have any skin left, because it would all have burnt away, and all you'd have would be bone, and your hand would never be useful for anything anymore. So actually, the pain mechanisms of the body are incredibly useful, aren't they? And in fact, le leprosy, Han Hansen's disease, one of the features of that disease is that th those pain um, mechanisms don't work anymore. And the reason why people ultimately die from it is not because the disease kills them, but because they damage themselves because they don't feel pain. They damage themselves and don't realise that that's what they're doing. And they gradually lose digits, you know, and, 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 and ultimately limbs. And, and life can't go on. So it's terrible, terrible uh, disease. But just, it, it helps us appreciate just how powerful <coughs> pain is as a mechanism. It's not because God enjoys seeing us suffer or something. It's God has built these pain mechanisms into our body for a very practical and useful purpose. Now, I'd like to take that and use that as an analogy for what pain in a much wider or broader sense is about. It tells us that there is something wrong. And indeed there is. There is something wrong. And that's a whole other talk, isn't it? It's what the Bible says about sin and death. There's something very wrong in this world that we need to change, that we need on an individual basis, society as a whole needs to deal with it. God will do that when Jesus comes back. But we each as individuals need to change something. We need to deal with our own sinfulness. And pain is a reminder uh, that that is the case. All the suffering in the world constantly reminds us that there's something not right here. There's something not right. It is, um, you know, disturbing and, um, you know, something that tells us, you know, this is an outrageous thing when, you know, when a young person dies, uh, for example. Um, 
and again, that is a reminder that this can't be the world that God is planning. Um, this is just a stage to something else. Um, uh, I sort of lost. Sorry, I've just lost my train of thought now for a second, and I've got way too many notes here. Um, right, yeah. So, so uh, let's just think again about how that how that works. That that, that point about the message from pain. So, so there is a message in human suffering that tells us there's something wrong, but it's not, it's not a sort of a one-to-one -one correlation, is it? Um, you know, we already talked about this example of I go to do something wrong, I go to punch and I get, I get a pain. You know, that one-to-one -one correlation between sin and suffering doesn't make sense, does it? That kind of a world would not make sense to accomplish God's purpose. So the pain isn't specifically attached. I mean, it could be. God, and there are examples in the Bible of where God, you know, sends suffering upon a person in order to make them change their ways. So it, it can be for that reason, but generally speaking, it isn't. It's, there's, there's a disconnect. Uh, it's not that I have a headache because I just thought a bad thought or did something I shouldn't have done this morning, um, usually. Uh, you know, I get a headache for whatever reason, and, and, and pain doesn't come with labels on it, does it? You know, when I get a headache, I don't get an email that says, you got this headache because it's not like that. But of course, whenever I do get a headache, I sort of think to myself, have I been doing something I shouldn't? I don't know if you, you think like that to yourself or not at all. Maybe that's really naive and silly of me to think that. But of course, it's always a possibility, isn't it? So suffering can actually be a tr trigger to make you think, is there something wrong? And then they or may not be. If there is, we can change it. And we may still have the pain, but, well, we've made a, we've made a change for the better. And, and, and so that's been, that's been a good thing. And so, so, so the point is, is, generally speaking, not a one-to-one -one correlation, but rather a message at the broader level, a reminder that something is wrong. And that's exactly what Jesus did in that chapter, in that, those five verses that we read. And Jesus cited two examples of, you know, Pilate having committed what to the Jews would have been an atrocity and some people who were the victims of an accident. You know, a tower fell down and squashed some people. And you can imagine the headlines and you can imagine people saying, how could God allow a tower to fall down and squash people? Um, and, and Jesus says, do you think that those people who got squashed by the tower um, were, were worse people? Do you think they'd done something wrong and that's why they got squashed? And um, the implication is no. The tower fell because, you know, maybe the builders built it wrongly or, you know, maybe there was a strong wind blowing. Who knows why the tower fell? It doesn't matter why the tower fell. The fact is we live in a world where towers fall from time to time. That's, you know, that's the kind of world that we live in. Whether it's through builder error or whether it's through some who knows what reason, towers fall down. But Jesus' point is not to, deal, to delve into, so let's see if we can take this example of a falling tower and work out who's to blame. Or, uh, and, or with any specific piece of suffering that we should do that, what is Jesus' point? Jesus says, um, no, there was nothing, there, it wasn't that they were worse than anybody else. This is the point. Except you repent. At some point or other, a tower is going to fall on you, and you'll perish. And so, beware, you live in a world with falling towers. You live in a world where things go wrong, where people get ill, 
where people have accidents, where crime is committed, where people die. We have to live in a world where people die, otherwise we'd live in a world with immortal sinners, wouldn't we? With immortal Hitlers walking about. Do we want that kind of world? Don't think we do. So we live in this world where, where towers fall, um, but the point is not, so why do towers fall? Or why did this particular tower fall? The point is, in such a world, what sort of a person am I going to be? And is the prospect of a falling tower going to change the way I act and behave? And in fact, this is uh, very powerful, this point. Um, it's often only when things start to go wrong that we think, uh, start to think about God. You know, how many people who never pray when something bad happens in their life Needing someone to turn to, pray to God. Now that's not what God wants. God would much rather that we prayed to him all the time. But isn't it interesting that it's when things go wrong that then we think more about God. And C.S. Lewis described uh, that. Um, he described a particularly bad cold that he'd had. And, and, and that's, uh, that seems really trivial, doesn't it? But, you know, this is how small-minded we can be. You know, he had, he had a bad cold. Uh, for two days, and um, suddenly he was made to think quite a lot about, um, well, about God, really, and um, uh, and about what he needed to be doing in his life. Um, and this is what he wrote about it. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self as long as all seems to be well with it. So when everything's going fine, we tend not to think about God because we think, oh, we're just fine. Everything's fine. There's nothing wrong here. I can do this. Uh, you know, I've got the power to be and do what I want to be. Everything's fine. Um, but that's an illusion, isn't it? That life's like that. For those times, if those of us when we've had times in our life when it's been like that, we know that those times don't last forever, don't we? And then other times come along where difficult periods will come. And we realise that actually we can't manage on our own and we need our Heavenly Father. The illusion, Lewis went on, the illusion of self-sufficiency must be shattered for our sake. Because actually we can't manage on our own. And with respect to this particular cold, he says, God had had me for 48 hours and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. So when, you know, when he was made to feel so wretched because of this cold, then uh, he really got round to thinking about God. So it's a pity, isn't it? It's a pity we're not better than that. Of course, sometimes we are better than that, but um, uh, sometimes we're not. It's a pity that it's like that, but uh, there's a lot of truth in it. And here's some words from Augustine. So he's now writing um, about 400 AD. So 1600 years ago, listen to what he says. God wants to give us something, but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. And you can imagine, uh, you know, that's 1600 years ago. So, and even then... Uh, you know, we, we would look back and say, wow, they had nothing in those days, wouldn't we? But, but even then, Augustine it's like, you know, carrying all this stuff. And you, know, you can imagine being laden up with all these boxes that you're trying to balance and walk along with. And, uh, and God's trying to give you something that's much better than all that stuff that you're carrying. You say, well, I'm sorry, I'm too busy carrying all this stuff. 
There's nowhere for me to put it, what you want to give me, Lord. And yet, once suffering enters into the picture, then I start to realise actually that I do have a need. And maybe I start to put down some of my boxes and start to be interested in what God might have to say. So that's another aspect of uh, what the value of suffering can be. We, um, one of the common metaphors for God in the scriptures is of a father, isn't it? God as a father. Uh, uh, but you've got to think, what, 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 is a, what is a good father like? And is a good father someone who gives their children everything that their children ask for? And the answer is no. That's how to spoil a child, isn't it? To just say yes to everything that they want. Um, and we know, if you've met any children who've been brought up like that, that they're not very pleasant children, are they? That's not how to be a good father, to just give your children everything that they want. Um, and, and with God, um, it's, it's the same. It's actually, by discipline, by chastening, by some of the difficult things that happen in life, that character is created and that God shapes us for the world that he wants. And again, C.S. Lewis has a good quote about this where he says that we tend to want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who gives us sweets and at the end of the day says a good time was had by all. You know, it would be nice to have that kind of God, we would think, wouldn't it? Who, you know, would just say, well, you know, I'm not really earning quite enough, Lord. Can you just help me and give me a bit of a promotion here? And that it would just happen feels a nice idea. But is that really what would be good for us? And I think we probably all know that the answer is, well, it doesn't work for human children. Why would you expect it to work for human adults in relation to their Heavenly Father? And actually, it's only God who knows. We don't know ourselves what's good for us, do we? And there's an element here of being able to hand this over to God, who knows far better than we do, and allowing him to do what is right. Um, so then we come to, uh, to, towards the close now, and to think about what is the value of suffering. You know, we know... We're, we know that suffering is not pleasant, um, but um, is, there, is, is there value in it? And one of the ways of thinking about that is just to think of, you know, who is it? Who is there in life that, that, that you really admire and that you really respect? And um, did they achieve that? What you admire about them? Did they achieve that by, for example, uh, sitting on the sofa watching TV and having everything they wanted handed to them on a plate? And the answer is it's very unlikely that you achieve anything that's to be admired very much by doing that. I mean, I suppose you might think of the example who was of someone who's really good looking and, you know, they were just born that way. So, um, you know, that's sort of just an, a genetic accident or whatever. Um, but most of the people that we admire for perhaps deeper reasons than that they're very good looking... Um, what we admire about them is generally something that has come because they've struggled, 
because they've put themselves out, because they've showed discipline. I worked with someone in, in America once who, um, uh, she was a, a stockbroker, but um, she was also the, uh, she'd also been the under 16 judo, female judo champion in America. How did she achieve that? She achieved it by getting up at four o'clock every single morning and doing two hours of training before she went to college and, and university and all that. Um, you know, I don't particularly admire judo champions, but, you know, it was impressive that she'd done that. It was because of the, you know, the, the, the determination and the, the, the fact that she put herself through that suffering, really, um, that developed her to be able to achieve what she achieves. A trivial example, but isn't it true that some of the people that we admire most are people who have been through traumatic and difficult circumstances and have, and have become more, actually, than what they were before as a virtue of what they've suffered. And this is me now not talking from personal experience at all, but from having read quite a lot of books on suffering. And uh, many of these books quote examples of people who have suffered. What happens when you suffer is that the stakes are raised. If you sit on the couch and watch TV... Um, there aren't a lot of stakes. Uh, well, I suppose there might be. That's a different kind of stake. Uh, 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 um, the, the stakes are raised in terms of what, what am I going to do here in this suffering? And one thing that you can do is you can become resentful and bitter. You can say, well, if God is going to allow this in my life, then I don't want to have anything to do with him. That's one possibility, isn't it? That, that we turn and walk away. But there's another possibility that we actually draw closer to him and that we become better people as a result of the suffering that we undergo. And that then now brings us to, the, to this point of the potential of suffering. So the point of suffering is really not to, uh, or the, 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 the crucial thing, the crucial question is not so much why we suffer. It doesn't matter why that tower fell down, does it? The question is not so much why we suffer, but how we suffer. That's, at the end of the day, what truly matters and what sort of person suffering enables us to become. And I remember reading the account of someone called Neil Salinger who um, had ALS, which is it's the, um, it's the thing that uh, Stephen Hawking has. Uh, and... He describes how, you know, all the things of his life that he used to do were taken away. But he has a little phrase that he says in his book where he writes of this and he says, As I diminished, I grew. Now, it's easy for me to say that, isn't it? And I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but he does. And I don't know if I were to diminish in that way, if I would grow or if I would shrivel up. And become better. You know, I can't say that and we won't ever know that until I suffer, will we? Um, and I suppose that's true for, for, for all of us. We don't know in, in what way it is in God's purpose to develop us and, and what he will bring into our lives. But, but it's interesting from a man who had that experience that he was able to say that he actually, although he became so much less as a person in an outward way, as a inward person what his true personality really was you know who is he as a person he actually grew he felt and became more of a person as a result of the suffering now that's paradoxical isn't it and isn't it utterly wonderful that that could be the case 
Uh, and, and we see this as, as part of God's way of working, actually, that he miraculously has the ability to take our suffering, which is a bad thing, and to bring something good out of it. So if suffering is here broadly because of human sinfulness, God can take that suffering and use it to a good purpose. Now that is smart, isn't it? That's creative. Um, and that's absolutely what God is about. And just think of some examples of this. You think of an example like Joseph, who was, you know, who was massively mistreated by his brothers and sold into Egypt as a slave. What does Joseph say at the end of his life? It says, you intended it me for evil, but God intended it for good, to, to, to save life. And to bring about this amazing turn of events in which, you know, Joseph became the, the, effectively the prime minister of Egypt, the second, Pharaoh's second in command. So God could take the evil of the brothers and he could use it in history and convert it to something which was utterly good. Or you take something like the Holocaust, which is sort of the poster child for the human evil, isn't it? When we think of the, you know, the terrible things that were, that were done. Uh, to the Jews in the Holocaust. And, and that then is thoroughly evil. And yet out of that, God is able to bring something which is good. And he's able to engineer the return of uh, the Jews, his people, back to the land of Israel. Which is something that had been prophesied in the, in the prophets uh, more than 2,000 years before. Out of evil, God brings good. Now that, isn't, that doesn't make the evil good, does it? But rather it says that even out of human evil, God can bring good results. And perhaps the most powerful example of it of all is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was humans who chose to do such a despicable thing to the one who was both the son of man and the son of God. And yet out of that human evil... God could bring the greatest act of salvation that has ever been accomplished. The very centrepiece of human history, uh, show, uh, of world history, shows God bringing good out of evil in exactly that way. And if God can do it in those examples, God has the power to do it in our lives too. And so that brings us back again to that question. It's not why we suffer. You know, why did this happen to me? Um, it's... Because that's, that's a matter for God, really. You know, some things we will know the answer to. Well, you know, that's because I was careless when I was banging the hammer, for example. You know, it might be as trivial as that. Or it might be, I have no idea why that happened. Um, but either way, the question is, how will we suffer? What are we going to do about it? And what sort of a person will we become? I'd like to close by a quotation. This is from someone, um, this is from Pascal, who was one of the um, French, was a French philosopher. He was also a mathematician. Um, uh, so he's writing in the 16th, 16th or 17th centuries. And he's talking about this very point. Um, you know, we don't know. We don't know why, the whys of it. Um, we can't control that. We've got to trust God there. Um, but we do control our response. And that's the thing that's key. So I'm going to ask Dan to read, read this quote for us. And that'll finish the, finish the session. I ask you neither for health nor for sickness, for life 
nor for death, but that you may dispose of my health and my sickness, my life and my death, for your glory. You alone know what is expedient for me. You are the sovereign master. Do with me according to your will. Give to me or take away from me, only conform my will to yours. I know but one thing, Lord, that it is good to follow you and bad to offend you. Apart from that, I know not what is good or bad in anything. I know not what I know not which is profitable to me, health or sickness, wealth or poverty, nor anything else in the world. That discernment is beyond the power of men or angels and is hidden among the secrets of your providence, which I adore, but do not seek to fathom.